Full disclosure, there is some skepticism on the crew over whether this trivia game will work. We'll get to that in a bit, though. Second. I just hit my mic. One second. <laughs> too much enthusiasm, Micah. <laughs> too much. <laughs> they told me to be energetic. Hello and welcome to the 538 Politics Podcast. Our normal host, Galen Druk, is out this week. I'm 538 Managing Editor Micah Cohen filling in. We've got two segments this week. To start, the seemingly imminent ousting of Representative Liz Cheney of Wyoming, currently the number three Republican in the House. If you were looking for a symbolically rich drama encapsulating the fight over what the Republican Party should be, well, you got it. Cheney is the daughter of a former vice president, after all. At one time, at least, she was really the establishment's establishment. But Cheney has repeatedly criticized former President Donald Trump and pushed back on his lie that the 2020 election was stolen from him. Republicans in the House, as early as this week, look likely to vote her out of the leadership. We'll discuss whether there's room for Cheney-type Republicans in the modern Republican Party, and we're going to do this via a trivia game. Get excited, people. Full disclosure, there is some skepticism on the crew over whether this trivia game will work. We'll get to that in a bit, though. Second, we'll discuss the latest round of voting restrictions instituted by state-level Republicans. Governor Ron DeSantis of Florida signed new voting restrictions into law last week. Florida is a perennial battleground, of course. Trump won it by about three percentage points in 2020. It's also just the latest Republican-controlled state following Georgia, Montana, Iowa, to impose new hurdles to casting a ballot after November's elections. And it won't be the last. We'll talk about what the Florida legislation does, and we'll talk about these rafted laws generally. But first, here with me to talk about all that, 538 political reporter Alex Samuels. Welcome, Alex. Howdy, Micah. How's my hosting so far, Alex? It's good. I I was close to saying howdy, Galen. It's been so great so far. Seamless uh, sub in there. Thank you. Uh, Also with me, 538 elections analyst Nathaniel Rakich. Hey, Nathaniel. Hey, uh, Micah. Thank you. And finally, voice actor on The Simpsons, Nate Silver. Welcome, Nate. Oh, hi, guys. (laughs) Is that what you think The Simpsons sounds like, Nate? (laughs) I I don't know. (laughs) I'm a vocal talent, voice talent now. I'm talent. Yeah, for those of you who don't know, Nate, fill us in quickly on on what you did. So I was approached by The Simpsons, a show that I've watched ever since I was a kid, basically. And they uh, featured me and my ABC News colleague, George Stephanopoulos, in an episode about Lisa Simpson becoming president. So I, you know, broke down her demographics, gave her various odds, made a joke or two. I would encourage you all to watch it. I hate watching myself on TV. So it was like even more nerve wracking to watch (laughs) the portrayal of yourself on The Simpsons. It was flattering enough, right? It was with some friends. They ordered like donuts for dessert and everything. But yeah, go, go watch the program. It gives a good shout out to 538 too. Lisa Simpson, governor of Indiana, is running for president. Not even her highly damaged relationship with her mother can stop her now. Nate Silver analyzes. Well, George, Lisa is doing great with disenchanted daughters. Also, tiger moms, checked out dads, and grandparents who like everything. Plus middle children, nerds of all ages, and saxophonists above second chair. 
Now, it's week before the election, but what the hell, I'm calling it for Lisa. My work here is done. Good luck, America. Well, very well done, Nate. Round of applause for Nate, please. <laughs> Hashtag life goals. Seriously. But let's get into it. First up, is there room for Liz Cheney in the modern Republican Party? So as I said at the top, Representative Liz Cheney of Wyoming looks likely to be ousted from her number three position in the Republican leadership. Cheney voted to impeach Trump on a charge of inciting the January 6th insurrection and has already survived one attempt to get rid of her. In the time since that last vote, Cheney has continued to push back on false claims that there was widespread fraud in the 2020 election, and she's pushed for a commission to investigate the January 6th Capitol insurrection. This time, unlike last time, it looks like other members of the GOP leadership want her out. House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy is reportedly, quote, concerned about her ability to carry out the job as conference chair to carry out the message, end quote. And McCarthy has actually endorsed Representative Elise Stefanik of New York to replace her. So our big question for today is, is there still room for Cheney-type Republicans in the modern GOP? As I said, though, we're going to go about this a little sideways, and we're going to try to answer that via a trivia game. This is a special trivia game, though. Sure, it will include a couple of questions with clear, objective answers, but we'll also include just, frankly, open-ended, subjective questions, and I'll simply decide what the right answer is. Sound good to everybody? <laughs> you can't hear it, but there's just three skeptical faces on, on the screen right now. I think this is going to be very, very biased, Micah. Biased in what way, Nate? I, I don't agree with that. Okay, let's get into this. There's going to be seven questions in total, including two two-part questions. Whoever gets the most right wins a special mystery prize that I'll reveal at the end. Before we begin, though, I do want to just take 30 seconds quickly to describe what we mean by a Liz Cheney Republican. So, Nate, can you just give us a quick elevator pitch definition of that? Well, I would think of a conservative Republican as a holdout or a leftover from the Bush-Cheney era of Republicanism, but who is not on board with the notion that the election was stolen, what I would call the big lie, and is not on board with some of the excesses of Donald Trump. I think it's important not to define a Liz Cheney Republican as like a moderate Republican. That's something very different. She's not moderate. She's quite conservative, at least by the playing field that Democrats and Republicans kind of fought over in the pre-Trump era, but she's Trump skeptical and a critic of the big lie. Perfect. Let's dive in though, our trivia game. We're going to start it off with an objective question, a two-parter. Both parts are worth one point. First, according to a recent Pew survey, what share of self-identified Republicans and Republican-leaning voters said Trump should be permanently banned from social media sites following the January 6th insurrection at the U.S. Capitol? 26%. 7%? I will go below. I'll say 6%. Okay. And the correct answer is 11%. Alex, you win. Closest. Oh, Very nice. What an honor. Can I just point out <laughs> that Rakich had this gigantic gap between 7 and 26, and he chose to go lower? Just strategically... <laughs> Poor strategy. You're not ever permitted on the prices, right, Rakich? I mean, my first thought was that it would be like 3%. So I figured it would be very, very low. But obviously I was wrong, so. Okay, 
Alex, you have one point. Before we talk about this a little, let's go to the second part of this two-part question. Same poll, Pew poll, but what share of self-identified Republicans and Republican leaners who also identified as moderate or liberal said Trump should be permanently banned from social media sites? 29. And the correct answer is 23%. So Nate gets a point there using the Price is Right strategy. So basically, we have about one in 10 Republicans support Trump being permanently banned from social sites, and only about one in four even of moderate liberal Republicans support that. Does this tell us anything about the anti-Trump appetite among Republicans, or was this just a dumb trivia question to include? I lean more toward the latter. (laughs) (laughs) So here's my argument is I was looking for questions that showed Republicans who would support some action to distance the party from Trump rather than just approve or disapprove. I mean, I wouldn't go as strongly to say that this was a dumb trivia question, but I do think it kind of shows that there is no appetite to move on from Trumpism in the Republican Party. I think he has a very solid hold on Republicans, uh, the most conservative Republicans, and even the more liberal or moderate Republicans, too, in some cases. I'll give Micah the benefit of the doubt here and say that assuming that it's not, there aren't like weirdnesses with small sample size, which I think there might be, it does say something interesting that identifying as a Republican these days is to identify as a Trump supporter. And like, maybe there are a not insignificant number of those people, because obviously I, actually all of us thought that the number of liberal or moderate Republicans who support banning Trump from Twitter would be higher. And it maybe shows that there can be like some people who are Trump fans, but still identify ideologically as moderate or even liberal because maybe they support expanding Medicaid or something like that. It shows how decoupled ideology is from Trumpism. I mean, the reason why I think it's circular is they're Republicans. The Republican Party has kind of been defined by Donald Trump. If you look at the number of Americans who identify as Republican, it's a relatively small group, about 26% or exactly 26% in the latest Gallup poll. It's bounced around between 24 and 26 when Gallup has taken this poll every month that's down from 29 or 30 as it was through most of like the Trump presidency. So like we're not talking about that many people necessarily, but when you condition it on being a Republican and you're defined by allegiance to a party, then those people mostly still like Trump. And if they were going to break from Trump, there's a slow way and a fast way, I suppose. The fast way, though, if you were ever going to like say, okay, time for a clean break with Trump, usually when a party loses a presidential election, then Democrats don't want to have a lot to do with John Kerry or Hillary Clinton after their respective losses. And then Republicans also wound up in this overtime round losing the Senate, where Trump was very unhelpful. And then you had January 6th. They had plenty of good excuses for breaking with Trump, and they chose not to. So they're probably not going to do it now over a social media ban or something. Next trivia question. This is a subjective one, and also full disclosure, listeners and viewers. I shared this one with the team in advance, so they had some time to think about it. What was the biggest turning point in terms of the evolution of the modern Republican Party over the last 30 years? 
Well, I had to do some thinking about whether my proposed answer was actually 30 years ago because we're all terribly old and 2021 is the future. But <laughs> I'm going to say this 94 to 98 period, if I can define it a little bit broadly, basically the rise of Newt Gingrich, the 1994 midterm elections that uh, swept out a lot of moderate Democrats and brought Newt Gingrich to power. And then, of course, in 1998, he went full throttle and and attempted to impeach President Clinton. And I think that these changes really brought about an attitude shift. I remember that Gingrich replaced Bob Michelle. I'm sorry, I don't know how to pronounce his name, but he was a much more moderate, let's work with the Democrats type of Republican leader. And Gingrich took this much more antagonistic approach that painted Democrats as the enemy. And I think that that really was a turning point for a lot of the polarization that you see and that has culminated in many ways with the Trump era. I'm going to have the cop-out answer and just say Trump and Trumpism. We're basically in a world right now where whether or not you're a conservative or you're accepted in Republican circles is if you are willing to lie and undermine democracy. And I don't think we've ever been in this place before. And Trump knows that Republican allies won't push back against his language, even when it's racist or inflammatory. And if they do, he can either attack them publicly And those who have tried to stand up to him have either lost re-elections campaigns, they've retired, or they're sort of Liz Cheney'd and on the outs with their party. So I would say what we're going through now is probably the biggest turning point for the GOP. Yeah, it's Alex's answer is clearly right. You could debate whether it's Trump winning the nomination or whether it's Trump becoming president. You could debate what was a pivotal moment in that sequence. But like, people are overthinking this, I think. Trump has agency. He personally, if he had not, for whatever reason, decided to run in 2015, I do not think the GOP would be in the same place right now. If he had been eliminated early on in the primary, I do not think the GOP would be in the same place right now. I mean, there have always been issues with racism in the modern and the not so modern, or I guess the modern Republican Party, keep discussion there for now. But like this kind of openly authoritarian, anti-democratic streak, I think goes back to Trump. If Trump had conceded the election. I don't know that we'd be in the same place on some of this stuff right now either. So I I give agency A to Trump and B to Republicans who enabled Trump. Well, I mean, I think that's certainly the other obvious choice. And I agree with everything that they said. And I think if we're talking about what the modern GOP is in the context of Liz Cheney getting kicked out of Republican leadership for being opposed to Donald Trump, and in a very literal sense, obviously, the Republican Party wouldn't be the party of Trump in particular, if not for his his election. So I think that's a completely valid answer. But I think that the seeds for that were sown earlier. You know, I wrote this article with Laura Bronner and Alina Mejia about how Republicans have become increasingly authoritarian in the recent decades. And I do think that that precedes Trump because we've seen that in many state legislatures as well. I think that's right. However, the correct answer is Trump. Point goes to Alex. I think, Nathaniel, you're right to identify there are a lot of pre-existing trends that Trump tapped into, that Trump exaggerated, that Trump exemplified. But the difference is enough in degrees where I think it's a it's a category shift. And in terms of just straight up anti-democratic behavior, I think we have seen some new things. So point goes to Alex. Nate totally conceded that round, which I don't think I is concede. a, a I good strategy. A, you can't, you have to give us both <laughs> points. No, Alex gave the answer first. That's so Alex gets the point. 
<laughs> so now I have an incentive to like lie about about like not agreeing with my colleagues' answers. Can we can make this instructive? I have zero points right now. So you know what? I think this game is rigged. I think this is a false <laughs> a false game. So I'm not gonna accept the results of the election. And Nate has a, an interest in joining me as well. So there you go. Uh, we've <laughs> just turned the 538 Politics podcast into uh, the modern Republican Party. This is getting too meta. I'm Team Micah. <laughs> yeah, thank you, Alex. This is a great game. <laughs> the, the score as it currently stands, Alex 2, Nate 1, Nathaniel 0. Next question. Questions four and five, actually. Another objective one and another two-parter. This one also comes from Pew, poll done in March. First, what share of Republican and Republican leaners said their party should be very or somewhat accepting of elected officials who disagree with their party on some important issues? 44%. 35%. The correct answer is 71% of Republicans said the party should be very or somewhat accepting of officials who disagree on some important issues. Point goes to Nathaniel. He's on the board. Congrats, Nathaniel. So that was higher than you thought, Alex and, and Nate. Any initial response to that? In some ways, it shows that people are not very good predictors of their own behavior, I don't think. I'd push back on that, actually, but let's actually come back to that. I'm going to give you the second part of this from the same poll. What share of Republicans and Republican leaners said the party should be very or somewhat accepting of elected officials who criticize Trump? 15%. 27%. 17%. The correct answer is 43%. Point goes to Nate with Woo! 27, who is oh closest. Although you all you all underestimated this. So we got two data points here. 71% of Republicans say the party should basically tolerate people who disagree on issues. And 43% say the party should tolerate people who openly criticize Trump. Does that surprise you that there's a big gap there or that both numbers are as high as they are? I mean, it surprises me that the gap isn't wider, obviously. I guessed you know a lot lower for the second question. But I mean, I think regardless, it shows that what you're seeing in this tension between Cheney and Stefanik is that Stefanik has a pretty moderate voting record, whereas Cheney has been this conservative, at least as conservative used to be defined, her conservative credentials are unassailable. And so it shows that being conservative does not necessarily equal being pro-Trump and they kind of exist on different axes. And Stefanik is someone who's been very personally loyal to Trump, but the ideological differences are something that clearly a good chunk of GOP voters and apparently politicians now, which is maybe the shift, are fine with. The other number that stood out to me in that poll was not only the difference between those two questions among Republicans, but how that compared to Democrats. So in particular, I think it was the share of Democrats who were okay with open criticism of Biden was 68%, much higher than in the GOP. Are there like structural reasons why the Democratic Party is more okay is that? Is, is it more pluralistic or more okay with pluralism? Why the big gap there? I mean, there are definitely obvious fractures within the Democratic Party, but I think the main difference is that Democrats and their party right now doesn't revolve around one person. And like you said, in the GOP, there's not a lot of room to be 
openly critical of Trump and still have a place in the party? There has always, to some extent, been a trade-off between how broad your coalition is and how cohesive it is. And in general, Democrats have been the broader coalition in American politics for for a long time, and the GOP has been more cohesive. And that's kind of nothing new. I would say the GOP is becoming even narrower at the margin still, relative to the data I said earlier. And again, keep in mind, which comes up like anytime we're discussing the GOP's long-term strategy, is like the GOP is not really winning very many majorities of anything, really. They're able to win their fair share of elections because they have advantages in the composition of the Senate and the Electoral College and the House, where if they get 48% of the vote, then they can wind up controlling those respective branches of, of government, potentially. And there are advantages, by the way, to being cohesive. In theory, it's easier to get higher turnout. It's easier to message things. It's easier to unite around key priorities or key legislation. I guess, unfortunately for the country, the GOP seems pretty united on various things that could undermine democracy in the electoral system. Yeah, I think that to put a fine point on it, Democrats are structurally more accepting of pluralism because that's how they win elections, whereas Republicans don't necessarily have to be all that ideologically diverse in order to win elections. There's also just the fact that I think Democrats on principle stand for pluralism more than Republicans do, given that they're kind of the party of ending, you know, racial inequities, et cetera. I think that's right. I did wonder, though, like if a question like this had ever been asked in 2009 or 10 when Obama was at the height of his popularity among Democrats. In other words, when Democrats had a more, let's call him charismatic leader, right? In any case, let's move on to the next question. Nathaniel stole a little bit of the thunder from this question in his continued attempts to undermine this game. But we're going to do it anyway. What is Liz Cheney's Trump score? So as a reminder, the Trump score is a metric we launched that measures the percentage of the time a senator or a member of the House votes in line with the president. So if the president opposes a bill, that would mean the member of Congress votes against it. If the president supports a bill, it would mean the member of Congress votes for it. What is Cheney's Trump score? Nate, you made the Trump score, so give us your first guess. And don't look it up. 89. 92.9. 93. (laughs) So this is actually a tough one. The exact answer, I believe, is on our Trump score interactive, 538.com. Please check it out. The exact answer on there is 92.9. However, however... (laughs) In my notes, I rounded it to 93%. So the question is, do I go with my notes or do I go with the source material? I'm going to go with the source material. Apologies, Alex. The point goes to Nathaniel. This game is rigged. (laughs) Yeah. So we're not going to discuss that question because I think Nathaniel really already explained it well. But as you can see, traditional left-right conservatism has really fallen away as a driver of Republican behavior. So as we head into our last trivia question, here's where the race stands. Alex, you are tied for first with two points. Nate, you are tied for first with two points. Nathaniel, you are tied for first with two points. Wow. Going into the final stretch here, it's a tie. Come back. It's winner take all. Nathaniel, you really have mounted a huge comeback here. 
Okay, it's tied 2 2 2. We're going into the final question, and I got news for you. It's a subjective question. Oh, great. <laughs> Is there room for Liz Cheney type Republicans in the modern Republican Party? I need a yes or no, and then a brief explanation. Uh, I don't know what that question means. Off to a good mean, start, Nate. Yeah, Sucking next caller. Next person. <laughs> <laughs> do you want to pass me i don't know any of the like modern you know i mean right now no there's not but she may probably still choose to identify as a republican i think maybe you're going to see some breakaway conservative party at some point i think that would happen sooner than the gop just recants and says okay we're cool with this now in two years four years ten years i I don't know. Okay, so a convoluted kind of <laughs> okay p- passes on the question answer from Nate. Alex, you're up next. I would say no, not as the party currently is, because being a quote-unquote conservative means everything that we've talked about before. So this unwavering loyalty to Trump and a belief in the big lie in Cheney is neither of those things. However, I will say I don't think there will never be room for her in the Republican Party because the GOP right now is primarily made up of older white men. And as the U.S. electorate becomes more diverse, the party will have to court more younger voters, voters of color and women. And Cheney falls into that latter group. And I think if the party continues to push out people who don't check this arbitrary Trump box, it could lead to the decline of the GOP because voters might elect fewer Republicans into local, state and federal offices. Great answer, Alex. Also, you're currently winning this round because you answered the question. Um, Nate decided not to. Nathaniel, you're you're up next. I'm going to go with a Hail Mary to distinguish myself. I'm going to say yes, there is room for the Cheney-type Republicans in the modern Republican Party. So I wrote this article a couple of weeks ago about turnover in the Republican caucus in Congress since Trump was elected. And I found that, first of all, there's been a lot of turnout over about 45% of Republicans who were in Congress on Inauguration Day 2017 are no longer in Congress or have announced their retirement. And for the most part, their replacements, uh, when they've been replaced by other Republicans, they have become more conservative. And that's by the old definition of conservative, I should note. I use DW nominate scores to figure that out. But some of these new Republicans, newly elected Republicans since then, have included some notable anti-Trump figures, such as Senator Mitt Romney, such as Rep. Peter Meyer. And so I would argue that in certain parts of the country, such as Utah with its large Mormon population, such as Michigan's third district around Grand Rapids, which is a evangelical old Dutch district, there is still the ability to elect some of these Republicans who go against the grain. Don't misunderstand me. The party is still 90% dominated by pro-Trump Republicans. But the question is, is there room in the corner, shunted off to the side for these people to remain Republicans? And I think there is. Uh, Some places in the country are willing to elect them. In addition, I think that just the structure of our elections, if you have a clown car primary against someone like Liz Cheney or against Peter Meyer, they could win with a plurality of the, of the votes, say 30 or 40 percent. So I don't think that these voices are going away within the Republican Party anytime soon. Great Hail Mary answer, Nathaniel. In fact, I agree with every point you made, I think. And I think technically you're right. I think you still will see some of these Republicans in the party However, that answer was totally wrong in all the ways that it really matters. And the point goes to Alex. 
Alex, you are a winner. Round of applause for Alex, everyone. Not even a single clap from Nate. <laughs> I want to point out a little bit of inconsistency here, right? Where several questions ago where Alex said an answer, and I agreed with her, she got the point. In this case, we both gave the same answer. I gave it first, and she also got the point, Micah. I think there's some some bias. Wait, here. you didn't answer I the question. I articulated it a little. I did answer the question. I just didn't. I mean, articulating it well. It's not my job. <laughs> I mean, that is your job. He's just one. a writer. <laughs> also, your answer had like five different, half of them self contradictory answers in them. It wasn't an answer. You got to be on the symptoms. You already won. Just let, let me Fine. take this, please. Fine. That it's is all true. You. It's all you. And actually, Nate, for your poor sportsmanship, I'm going to deduct a point, which means the oh, final score is Alex three, Nathaniel two, Nate one. Congratulations again, Alex. You've won this very, very successful and well-run trivia game. The prize, by the way, is my deep, deep admiration and respect. Happily, we'll take that. Thank you. <laughs> okay. Next, we're going to talk about the new voting restrictions enacted in Florida and elsewhere around the country. But first. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. People who disappear without a trace. Where is she? The most notorious murder cases in New York. Pure evil. And the most devious killers. There's a Hannibal Lecter feel to him. For chilling true crime stories, follow the True Crime NYC podcast wherever you listen. As mentioned at the top of the show, the Republican governor of Florida, Ron DeSantis, signed legislation last week that contained a bunch of changes to the state's election laws. Florida is only the latest state to make many of these changes, and it's unlikely to be the last. So we're going to talk about all of this. But to start, let's talk about that Florida legislation specifically and what exactly was in it. Nathaniel, I know you've been doing some reporting and writing about this. Can you break it down for us? Sure. So Ron DeSantis, as Micah mentioned, signed this bill into law. It's kind of the biggest voting restriction package since the Georgia one that got so much attention back in March. So like the Georgia law, this would require a proof of ID for absentee voting. So this could be your driver's license number, but also your social security number. It restricts drop boxes to being open either at early voting sites while they are in operation, which seems kind of redundant, or at election offices, but they have to be fully staffed at elections offices. So effectively, this kind of restricts drop boxes to only being open during business hours, either at early voting stations or at election offices. It also bans the practice of quote-unquote ballot harvesting, or I think more specifically, it says that you can't return more than two absentee ballots for people who aren't your family or kind of immediate inner circle. Currently, or I guess until a few days ago, if you request an absentee ballot in Florida, you actually are requesting it for the next two election cycles. So the people who did it in 2020 requested it for 2022 as well. And so this law changes that. And so now requests are only good for one election cycle. But of course, that does bring Florida into line with, I believe, every other state's absentee voting request 
the laws. And then one of the biggest provisions, certainly this was among the biggest deals after the Georgia law, but this Florida law also broadens the definition of vote solicitation to mean, quote, engaging in any activity with the intent to influence or effect of influencing a voter. And Florida law already banned vote solicitation within 150 feet of polling places. And so the fear here from voting rights activists is that this could be interpreted in the same way as the Georgia bill, which is to ban giving food or water or campaigns giving food or water to voters who are waiting in line close to polling places. I should note that nonpartisan actors such as the election officials themselves can still give out food or water. Generally speaking, is this bill representative of the Republican efforts nationally to change these voting laws? Yeah, definitely. So in an article that I'm going to have coming out on the website on Tuesday, I count 11 states, all with effective Republican control of government that have passed voting restrictions. You know, many of them, such as Florida and Georgia, have gotten national media attention because those are major swing states. But there have also been pretty significant changes to election laws in places like Arkansas and Montana that have flown under the radar. So let's stay focused on these laws more broadly, not just in Florida, but in all these other states where they're being pushed. But let's try to add a little historical context here. What about this recent period of voting restrictions is similar to previous periods in U.S. history? And what's different? So let's start with similar, and I'll just throw it open to the group. Are there parts of this effort that we've seen in in the past in the U.S.? I mean, the obvious answer is yes. I mean, and in fact, there used to be laws that you just couldn't vote unless you were a (laughs) property-owning white male. There have always been efforts from the very dawn of the Republic to contest who gets to vote and how they get to vote. The recent bills passed in states such as Georgia and Florida are not out of scope with more recent efforts. Our election model actually uses some inputs based on voting regulations. So if you go and you kind of research and look at the Brennan Center reports or look at news accounts, every year, dozens of states change their voting laws in all different types of directions. The differences now are, number one, it's getting a lot more media attention. And number two, the motivation for it seems to be, again, the phrase we used earlier, like the big lie, the notion that like the election was stolen unfairly from Donald Trump by mail ballots or ballots cast illegally or people without ID voting or whatever else. So it's the motivation, at least a sensible motivation, that's different. We can probably debate later whether that's the real motivation or not, right? Traditionally, the motivation was that Republicans thought that if you kind of make it harder for minorities to vote, that they would win more elections, right? I mean, that's kind of the fairly straightforward, frankly, motivation and how much of that is rooted in racism per se versus electoral gain. I don't know that you necessarily need to sort out because they kind of are compatible from like the GOP's point of view. But the difference now is kind of the motivation for it and not that these laws themselves are all that different than what's been done historically. Yeah. When these bills are brought up, it's not uncommon to hear Jim Crow 2.0 or Jim Crow of the 21st century, which I think gets to what he said earlier about bills centuries ago, just making it harder for 
black and brown people to cast a ballot. But even more recently, since 2010, states have been on this spree of restricting voter rights and voter access. And that was when Republican-controlled state legislatures began passing voter ID laws and other provisions that made it harder to vote. And when the Supreme Court gutted the Voting Rights Act in 2013, too, even more states made it harder to vote in ways that were targeted at and fell disproportionately on people of color, young people, and low-income people. Is there anything that's different about the recent spate of changes compared to, as Alex, you just said, the Republicans have been pushing some of these changes as recently as 2010, right? But is there anything different about this current episode compared to then or compared to Jim Crow? I think the push against mail-in voting is pretty new. And this comes after several Republicans, Lindsey Graham included, called mail-in balloting a nightmare and essentially said that Republicans would not be able to win presidential races so long as that's in play. The Florida case is interesting because traditionally, Florida Republicans did very well with their absentee program. I mean, I know there were some like cute takes about how Georgia could backfire in various ways. In Florida, it's a more straightforward case that like pre-pandemic, the GOP did very well with the absentee vote. It's an older electorate. And that when you're not in a pandemic, if we're not in a pandemic, knock on wood in 2024, then it might revert back to being a program that Republicans would have taken advantage of. And so, I mean, ironically, you can say it's different because now the GOP is doing it when it might not be electorally advantageous. I don't know, this gets into sticky territory. But it's interesting that like the Florida one is not causing as much outrage, I think, A, because again, Florida has become a red-leaning state. And so ordinarily, you would think that, hey, if you're winning elections, then why tinker with that? Why take a risk and add uncertainty? And again, the fact that out of any electoral program in the country, any early vote program in the country, this is one that tended to help the GOP more pre-COVID at least. So let's put the kind of electoral effects aside. I know we and a lot of other people have been looking into this and, and there's a lot to discuss there. But I do want to just talk quickly about voting as an issue and what the public thinks about these changes and voting administration more generally. Where are people on this? Do they have strong opinions? Do they support these changes? Do they not know about this? Well, I was looking at a Reuters Ipsos. They had a poll that came out late last month that found 81% of Americans believe it's important for the government to make it easier to vote. But 74% also think it's important that new limits are set to protect elections from fraud as well. And I think as long as the Republican Party continues to push this message that these votes will combat voter fraud, which, as we know, is a pretty baseless claim. There are no widespread reports of it. But as long as politicians keep saying it and voters keep believing it, I think the Republican voters at least will be pretty supportive of the laws that have been passed. Yeah, when you look at polls specifically asking about these laws in in general, they tend to be pretty polarized. It's about half and half, and Republicans tend to support them, and Democrats tend to oppose them. But it's more interesting, I think, if you break it down into the specific provisions. And a consistent pattern, I think, emerges, which is that American voters, including plenty of Democrats, are quite supportive of voter ID laws in particular, including requiring proof of ID for absentee voting. So a few weeks ago, I wrote an article running through a bunch of these polling numbers, and I found a YouGov poll that found that Americans support an ID requirement for absentee voting 53% to 28%. 
And so I think that shows that that particular provision, which is also one of the provisions that got a lot of pushback in the Georgia law, the Democrats who are arguing against that are very much in the minority. That said, other restrictions on voting tend not to be popular. So the ban on food and water giving out is opposed by Americans 69% to 18%. Americans also are generally supportive of drop boxes, although opinion on that is kind of soft because a lot of people don't have an opinion. But again, the UF poll that I found found that uh, 44% of Americans support 24-hour drop boxes and 33% are opposed. But obviously that leaves a lot of people who aren't sure. And in general, you know, having access, like mailing ballots to people automatically is a step too far for most Americans, but generally Americans are quite supportive of having the option to vote absentee. Is there anything Democrats can do to stop these changes in some of these states? So I think a lot of lawsuits have already been filed against the Georgia law in particular, and I think that lawsuits have have already been filed against the Florida law. I read an article where a lot of voting rights advocates expressed skepticism about this approach just because a lot of these laws, they're so wide ranging. And so to file a lawsuit against them is just, they're Herculean tasks and you'd have to address each part of the law and things like that. But those lawsuits do exist and they're at least trying this method. And then the other big thing they could do is federal action. There's been a lot of talk about the For the People Act, which is the big election expansion law, H.R. 1, that a lot of people have been talking about. And then there's also the new Voting Rights Act that's named after John Lewis that would protect nominated voters in particular. So if these things were to pass, it would cut off at the knees a lot of these Republican restrictions. So for example, H.R. 1 guarantees people the right to vote absentee without an excuse. It also gives people a workaround to voter ID laws where they can sign a sworn affidavit that says, yes, I am who I say I am. So that's something that Democrats can do. But of course, as we're seeing in D.C. with the Senate filibuster apparently not going anywhere. And in fact, Joe Manchin not coming out in favor of H.R. 1. It looks like at least H.R. 1 is not going to pass. And to wrap, I have two meta questions on this issue. I've seen in coverage of these voting restrictions a lot of debate about what the right frame for them is. Are these changes an electoral story? How will they change the results? Is it a political story? Is it, should we cover the issue themselves and how they poll? Should we cover this from the frame of the motivations behind the measures, from a historical frame, right? How does this differ or resemble past efforts? Nate, do you feel like one of those should be prioritized or is it just all of them matter? No, it's, it's all the above. I think where I maybe differ from some journalists and maybe even people internally, right, is like, I think it's okay to try to bite off different parts of this complicated problem. I think it's okay to say, I, Nate Silver, am going to focus on the electoral aspect, not because it's the most important aspect, but because it's what I've studied. Or I, someone else, am going to focus on the historical aspect because that's what I've studied. So I believe in pluralism, I guess, is one way to put it, including on this topic. Yeah, I think that's right. I think I try to be more toward the fundamental voting rights aspect of things. I totally take Nate's point. I think he's right that there is a place for coverage about how they will affect the results. I think that that is Nate's bailiwick. And the beat that I've taken for myself is more about voting restrictions matter in and of themselves, even if there is no partisan impact. And I think when Nathaniel and I did our story, just looking at the big list of voting restrictions being passed nationwide, we arguably looked more at the motivations for it and how the big lie was 
encouraging all these state legislatures to push these bills. Because, I mean, one could argue if the big lie was not around, maybe we wouldn't see what we're seeing now. So while I think looking at it at the all four things that you outlined, Micah, is definitely important. I think looking at the motivations is the way I'm tackling it. Yeah, and that actually sets up nicely my final meta question, which is, I think there's also been some debate about, basically that comes down to like, how alarming are these efforts by Republicans? Is this a five alarm fire for democracy? Is this a two alarm fire? Do people have opinions there? How freaked out should we be on democracy's behalf? I think there's kind of a elephant in the room, and it's an elephant we talked about in the first segment, which is like, could Republican officials actually try to deprive a duly elected Democrat from assuming the office of the presidency if they won the election? If that were to happen, then that is clearly, I, without trying to exaggerate too much, the greatest breaking point for American democracy since like, the Civil War, at least. And so I think to the extent it's a five-alarm fire, it's because it's rooted in this notion of the big lie. And that's why it's more urgent. Because again, like every year, lots of laws are passed. These laws are not especially draconian. There have also been more efforts by liberal states to make it easier to vote. There were things under COVID that were kind of enacted that were meant to be temporary provisions in some states that lapsed. In some states, they're permanent. But for better or worse, this has always been part of American democracy. And it maybe is one of the reasons that American democracy is flawed is that you don't have this necessarily strong of a norm as you should toward, frankly, the right to vote. But it's the stop the steal, (laughs) big lie stuff that I think is the five alarm fire, or at least a 3.8 alarm fire is alarming. I agree with Nate. I think that it's a five alarm fire in terms of the motivations. All of the frames are important to talk about, but maybe that is the most important frame because, because yeah, I like to take the, the electoral example. There is debate about whether these laws are going to actually hurt Democrats the way that many of them fear or whether they might backfire and also what the magnitude of the changes are. I think most political science finds that even major voting restrictions or major voting expansions have only a modest effect. And so, yeah, I think if you're comparing to this idea that Republicans may outright deny a duly elected future Democratic president-elect, that is certainly the biggest possible problem out of this. I think why I would give it a five-star alarm here is because if Trumpism continues to dominate the GOP, I mean, this is really only the beginning. I can't imagine what we're going to see in years down the line if the big lie is still pervasive. To end the show here, I'll switch from host to my normal role as panel member to say that I do think the intent behind these laws is the main thing because it betrays a, an anti-democratic streak and a willingness to kind of do or say anything that makes denying a duly elected Democrat the White House not at all far-fetched. And so, yes, I did rig these questions to lead you all to that conclusion. That does it for us today, though. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, listeners and viewers. I hope I did not butcher this too much as your fill-in host. Nate, thank you. Thank you. Trivia game winner, Alex Samuels, congrats and thank you. Thank you so much. It's truly an honor. (laughs) And finally, Nathaniel, (laughs) thank you so much. Thanks, Micah. 
My name is Micah Cohen. Tony Chow is in the virtual control room. Claire Bidegar-Curtis is on the audio editing. You can get in touch by emailing us at podcasts at 538.com. You can also, of course, tweet at us with questions or comments. If you're a fan of the show, please leave us a rating or a review in the Apple Podcast Store or wherever you get your podcasts. Tell someone about us. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you soon.